So just who were the Vikings who shaped so much of Irish history, our landscape, and even our gene pool? From those first violent raids at the beginning of the 9th century and for over 200 years after, the Viking and Gaelic worlds were interwoven, battling at war for sure, but also collaborating, trading and even marrying. I'm Helen Shaw, and in Mother's Blood, Sister's Songs, we're exploring how Ireland, and in particular Irish women, became such a vital part of the Viking settlement of Iceland. And to understand that all just a little bit better, I sat down with Viking expert Professor Paul Holm at Trinity College Dublin. I'm Paul Holm and I'm a professor of medieval and early modern environmental history. Uh, so I look at uh, how humans have uh, engaged with the marine and terrestrial environments and uh, survived even in adverse times. Climate change, that sort of thing. So I'm Danish. Uh, I uh, had a, a background as a maritime historian in Denmark for 20 years, really looking at uh, fisheries and shipping. But I was also really interested in uh, Vikings and especially the Vikings in Ireland, which at the time when I did my master's degree back in the 1980s, it was not a thing that many people had looked into. So there was this huge richness of uh, medieval annals that provided so much more information about the Vikings than anything I had come across in uh, my Scandinavian background. So when we talk about the Norse and the Vikings in Ireland, could you maybe just at the beginning help us by, like when we use the word Viking, mm. who are we talking about? Yeah, in Ireland, we should probably be thinking of people from Western Norway, and they seem to be on scouting missions in the 790s. They realize that there is this opportunity of going down the Scottish Isles and, and hitting uh, the Irish mainland. We certainly have evidence from 794 of the first attack. We don't know if that is part of a, a wider raiding activity or if the, the annals are truly representative of what is happening. Certainly, it seems like in the first generation of attacks, there's not a huge onslaught of Viking activity. The really big increase in Viking raiding comes in the 830s. That's when we hear of flotillas of ships coming uh, to the Boyne, for example, and setting up winter camps. This is when you can say Ireland was truly under attack and we have also evidence that uh, no longer are they just attacking coastal regions, they're actually going up the rivers and into the interior of, uh, of Ireland. And this is when the monasteries, of course, come under attack. This is when the Monastery of Kells, for example, is looted uh, repeatedly. Uh, so this is really an age of uh, peril to Irish kings. They have to decide, do they pitch battle with the Vikings or do they try and uh, perhaps uh, 
build an alliance with some of the Vikings against the other Irish kings. So we get, in a matter of 10, 15 years, this really complicated story of not just Vikings attacking, but also some Irish kingdoms seizing the opportunity of using the Vikings as mercenaries in an interior Irish battle. So in a matter of just the second or third generation, the Vikings are no longer just West Norwegians. They are also people who are based and living in Ireland. They are marrying Irish women and they are also recruiting Irish people who suddenly see that actually I can have an opportunity to win riches if I join these uh, hooligans who have now come. So we hear of the Galgail, who are Irish, who have taken on the Norse ways of life and are turning into pirates. Sometimes I feel we're sitting in a culture where all these hidden traces of what happened are present. When somebody's name is McLaughlin or McAuliffe, mm. they're actually echoing what probably is what you're talking about, this intermarrying and this settlement that would have happened across that period, particularly from 830 onwards. Yeah, this is a, a period of opportunity in many ways. It's also a, a period of disruption. All the old ways are being challenged by this incoming people who are bringing warfare, of course, they're also bringing trade and they are bringing new ways of doing stuff. For example, they are uh, hunting seals and porpoises, which is noted in the annals as, we've never seen that before, uh, a big slaughter of porpoises off the coast and that sort of thing. So a marine activity which shows you that the Vikings were interesting because they had a completely different approach to the natural environment. They were using and naming, of course, also uh, features in, uh, in, the, in the coastlines of Ireland, which has left uh, its trace right up to today, of course. And they are using areas around Dublin Bay especially for their own purposes. Lamb Bay, of course, the island of the lambs is just one example, Hoth. I love to go around the, the cliffs of Hoth and just imagine Dublin Bay full of these Viking ships waiting down there, uh, ready to go on their next adventure. But Hoth, of course, is Norwegian Hervus, which means head. And of course, Skerries. Skerries is, well, it's the Skerries, but it's, uh, it's a Norwegian name, yeah. Can you give us a sense about some of those innovations they were bringing? Like we have that always that sense and you, of the longboats and the cleverness of the fact that the boats could go through the rivers. They were able to move across the island through the river bases. So the, the longboats, but also their trading skills. In a sense, this mercantile and it, it, you know, obviously then the fact that it pushes into Russia, Asia, that we have this sense sometimes that the story we miss when we look at this is how significant this little patch and the British Isles become in, in that focus point of extending a technological wave across mm. uh, the world. Yeah, so the, the Vikings of course bring a technology which is novel in the sense that the, the ships can cross oceans. Of course, the Irish had boats and they were certainly able to navigate the Irish Sea. 
but the novelty is that you have these big wooden hulls that can carry large cargoes as well as these swift slender ships that uh, are fantastic war machines. Uh, so the Vikings sort of take boat technologies to an entirely new level, which also becomes adapted to the specific Irish environment. So obviously if you want to go up uh, through the Irish rivers, you need shallow draft boats that can also be moved quickly. Uh, so we, we can see that in Dublin, the ship technology really is getting refined. Uh, through the 10th century, we have, of course, the wonderful Sea Stallion, uh, which is uh, recorded uh, because it was lost in Roskilde Fjord in Denmark, but the timbers show that it was built out of uh, timber from Glendaloch in 1042. Uh, so this was clearly built for the purpose of uh, uh, being one of the uh, Dublin King's war fleet. It's not a royal ship, it's sort of bog standard in, in terms of its uh, carpentry. Uh, so it's understood to be likely just one of his many ships that he would have used. Maybe 20, 30, 40 uh, ships would have been at his uh, command and they would have been formidable war machines that could be sold to the highest bidder and provide uh, a really instant complement to whatever needs a, a local warlord would, would need in order to, to pursue his needs. So this is what the Dublin turns into. It, it's, it's starting uh, as a pirate's nest, but eventually turns into a war machine that's up for the highest bidder. Dublin King earns huge amounts of cattle and slaves in return for offering his uh, warriors uh, to the highest bidder. And let's just, you know, expand that a little bit because again, you know, this idea that the market and Dublin become, it, we become a trading port mm. for goods, animals and obviously slaves. People are really the, the, the biggest commodity <laughs> to the Vikings because uh, the Vikings are expanding into the North Atlantic. They need labor to be able to survive in the Faroes, in Iceland. Uh, so they bring wives who they take as uh, slaves from their Irish neighbors. They also need rough people who can be put to work in just breaking the ground in these really harsh new environments. Uh, so we know of people who are, are, are rebelling in the Westman Islands, for example, in Iceland, just killing their Norse commander. Some Irish people were just fed up with being taken away and they, uh, they, they rebel. Eventually they're hunted down and they are killed. But that's just one story of, of many, I'm sure. We have uh, stories of people being sold into continental Europe, of course, and some probably even being emasculated, sold as eunuchs down to Cordova in Spain. So people are really a, a major commodity. And of course, the Irish language picks up the, uh, the importance of the market. The very word uh, market is Norwegian. Uh, and is introduced into Gaelic, Pengin, similarly. So slave trade 
means an increase in mercantile operations. It also means that there is uh, people who gain a craving for luxury products. So the Vikings are able to trade Byzantine, for example, Byzantine silks into Ireland. Irish kings would have been willing to pay a high price, not least in people, to gain access to this kind of, of new luxury com commodities. So 871, and you know, you have this move. Can, can you give, it, give us a sense what's happening in the Norse Viking world that pushes that group to mm. Iceland? Yeah, it's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? That the, the Vikings having this upper hand and really creaming off the riches of England and Ireland. And then they make this move to Iceland, which we think of now as a really hostile environment. And it must have been challenging just to cross the North Atlantic to go there. And the name itself says it all, doesn't it? So why did they go? I think the, the attraction of Iceland was two things. One, this was an opportunity for people who were really at loggerheads with perhaps the Norwegian king. So this was a safe route for people who maybe were outlawed or maybe were just feeling the heat of home conflicts. Uh, so it's a, it's a way out. It's also very attractive because Iceland at the time, of course, was environmentally rich. Uh, it was a, a place full of bird life, very importantly, full of walruses. Uh, so you can trade the tusks of these walruses to Europe. And we know that these tusks fetched a very high price. So some archaeologists even have suggested that the main driver for going to Iceland was actually the walrus trade. And of course, Iceland at the time had a milder climate. The forests uh, were 10 times the, the, the size of, of what is left today. Of course, Iceland today has largely uh, lost its forest cover. They're trying to rebuild it. Uh, but it was really deforested in the, in the high middle uh, ages. But on arrival, they would have seen a forest cover and they would have seen lush green. The grass would have been everywhere. So you, are not, you shouldn't think of Iceland as that sort of lava desert uh, that, that we experience. When, when you fly into Keflavik today, you will arrive at really a deserted, barren place, you should think of lush greens, a bit like Ireland perhaps. And that of course meant that there was rich opportunity for pasture as well. So the early settlers would have seen this as a land of opportunity and of riches and it's only in the course of the next two, three centuries that we have a catastrophic soil erosion because clearly Iceland is more exposed so the environment was less resilient to human uses than a country like Ireland. So in a, in a matter of a couple of centuries, Iceland turns into this barren landscape that we know today. Partly, you know, when we look at this now, while the sagas talk about wives from Norway coming mm. and the, the, the legacy, it's probably there were very few um, Norwegian women who were part of that settlement 
in those in that early period because the environment the journey the settlement was so hostile so obviously the the story of the irish slaves has been sort of not part of mainstream icelandic storytelling but they they are there in the sagas we hear of course of uh, the slaves who are rebelling we also hear of uh, people who make it to the top melkorka is of course the the prime example an irish princess who is uh, taken as a slave sold at the market at Brenner, which is an island just off present-day Gothenburg in Sweden. And we know that Brenner at the time of the Viking period was a meeting place of Danish, Swedish, Norwegians, and also, in this case, a Russian merchant who actually is the one who is putting Melkorka on the market. And eventually she is sold to Iceland. And of course, because of her innate qualities as a princess, she makes it uh, through to become a, a renowned uh, lady of standing in, in Iceland, even though she's brought as a slave. And in some ways, it, it always sounds very magical that she, she's this mute slave and she's overheard when her son is two, speaking to him in a language that uh, Hoskell can't understand. She can speak, she's teaching him Irish. And then, you know, the sagas have her son coming back here to Ireland to mm. meet her father. And in some ways it always seemed like a fairy tale. And yet there is elements in which some of that could be authentic. It's very difficult to say what is authentic, what is not in the uh, Icelandic sagas. Obviously they are two, three, even 400 years removed from the original thing. So when we talk about the Icelandic story, in a sense, the genetic research coming out now, in particularly in the last 10 years, which is going into the mitochondrial DNA of Iceland, and which is showing, you know, 62, 65% of the female DNA came from the Gaelic mm -hmm. gene pool and 20% of the male from, from the Gaelic gene pool. It probably shouldn't surprise us because mm. of, of what we know about the slave trade and the settlement. And in Iceland, in some ways, this story of the past and maybe the, the thrall input or the slave pool into the origin story is kind of interesting in how they have to almost reconnect the fuller picture of the settlement. I think genetics uh, has, has reminded us that we Obviously, uh, mixing through history, the old idea that people did not move sort of by default uh, has been proven completely wrong. We know now that the, through the Stone Age, through the Bronze Age, through the Iron Age, people were on the move. There was all this mixing going on. Uh, so the Viking story is just one little part of that mixing of European uh, and, and wider populations uh, that we, we now realize was happening. One of the challenges in this mm. is that we talk about countries which we now identify, whether it's Ireland, Norway, Iceland, Scotland, and that and in some ways, you know, it's much maybe more accurate to talk about geographical regions and see them. So there is a sense that there is a lot of evidence in both the sagas and the annals about the intensive continued activity there is between particularly say what what is now Iceland, Ireland and the British Isles and uh, the Scandinavian region throughout the following century after 
Icelandic settlement? Yeah, I think the, the North Atlantic world was uh, very much more fluid than what we think of today when we have these nation states which have, have clearly carved out their territories. In the 9th, 10th centuries, none of these nation states existed. These were regions where people moved more freely. You didn't need to be card carrying your, your passport or anything. You didn't need to identify as this or that. You could actually choose your identity uh, as the, some of the Irish did when they teamed up with the, the Norse Vikings or vice versa. Also, I think we need to think in generational terms. You may arrive as a pirate, as a robber, as, as, a, as one who is really trying to just wrestle out the, the riches of, of the, the people that you attack. But if you settle, the likelihood is that your kids and your grandsons and granddaughters will begin to think of this as their home. Uh, they will also have attachment to the place. Uh, they will want to embellish it and they will want to have relations with, uh, with people and neighbors. Uh, they will turn into maybe not peaceful agriculturalists. Uh, we have this wonderful story in the Orkney saga of Svein. Even in the 12th century, every uh, springtime he would go on his spring trip, go raiding, uh, then come back to farm and then he would do a second autumn trip to do a bit more raiding. Uh, so these were certainly not your, your ideal neighbors, but certainly they would also be very different from uh, the kinds of people who would have no attachment uh, to, to the region. And I think that sense of people adapting and transforming themselves and learning from each other, and of course mixing blood uh, through time, makes it really incumbent on us to not just think of one Viking age, we should think of a probably Hiberno-Norse time of fluidity where people are experimenting and only as a result of two, three hundred years of interaction do we have clearly identified ethnicities that are then again, of course, challenged by the arrival of the Anglo-Normans. So it's a super interesting period because it challenges all that we've been taught in our childhood. And that was Paul Holm, Professor of Environmental History at Trinity College Dublin. And as you can hear, he's a passionate expert on the story of the Vikings in Ireland. And if you want to find out more about our project, Mother's Blood Sisters Songs, do go to the website, mothersbloodsisterssongs.com. Thanks for listening.